Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, here at the Air Warfare Symposium in sunny Orlando, Florida. Our podcast is sponsored by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. While here at this great conference hosted by the Air Force Association, we had the honor of interviewing Frank Kendall, the 26th Secretary of the United States Air Force. But first, a word from our sponsors. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, including our coverage here at the Air Warfare Symposium. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Here's our conversation with Secretary Kendall. Secretary Kendall, it's always an honor and pleasure seeing you. It's always a pleasure to see you too, Vago. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, very much. Your your comments today were um, uh, fascinating across the board, and I want to dig into a little bit uh, on them. Um, I know that uh, there's uh, guidance that comes straight from the White House to re- uh, restrict as much as possible discussing what's happening uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and certainly anything that deals with capabilities. But one of the things you were talking to the audience about is changing mindset, and, and what this means in terms of being an inflection point. Uh, the Germans are spending 100 billion more euros. Poland is spending more money. The European Union and the United States and its allies and partners around the world have sanctioned Russia in unprecedented fashion. If you wanted integrated deterrence, this is more of what it likely looks like than the things that we were doing. What does this mean in terms of how people need to think about threats and how to mentally prepare and physically and organizationally prepare for that pacing challenge, which is China ultimately? Well, I think what we have is a demonstration that wars can, in fact, happen. Wars of a type that we haven't seen for a very, very long time, outside of most people's living memory. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing naked aggression uh, by a great power against a European country, something we haven't seen really since World War II. Uh, you could argue that there were times when the Soviets went in to pacify, if you will, uh, a, a dissent. But this is something that most of us haven't really had much experience with. So it's, it's an emotional event, as I said this morning. Um, it, I think, should reinforce for people the fact that conflicts can happen and that we have to be prepared and that deterring them isn't something you can assume will be successful. Um, I've been trying essentially to, based on what I've seen about Chinese military modernization over a decade, and what I understand to be their ambitions or their goals, uh, I've been trying to raise alarm about China for quite some time. Uh, t- frankly, what, what Putin has decided to do here uh, is shocking to me, not just because uh, it, it's not something that's happened in recent time, but because it was such a, uh, a blunder in my mind for him to do this. Uh, and he's, he's now suffering consequences I don't think he remotely expected. But in any event, um, it, it is, I think, for most people, an emotional event, and it is something that heightens awareness. And that's probably true within the Department of the Air Force, just as it is other places. Uh, most people serving in uniform today have no experience dealing with a potentially aggressive peer competitor, a uh, well-resourced strategic competitor. Uh, but we have one now in China. Uh, we have one to a lesser extent, I think, in, in Russia. Uh, and I think one of the results of what's happening right now is a heightened awareness of that fact. 
How does this drive um, organizational change, right? I mean, uh, Chief has been talking about accelerate change or lose. Uh, you have been talking about uh, the fact that even though change is hard, losing is unacceptable, and that's basically where we go unless we start to change. I want to get to the budgetary dynamic of this. Uh, and as you said, right, it'll be hindsight of history where we, d we take the lessons from what it is that's happened and how. But from an immediate sense, what are does this prompt you to change any of the vectors or thinking that you had in terms of investment priorities or for anything else, but also more importantly in terms of driving home the urgency of why we've got to get our stuff in order and do it much more quickly than we've been doing it? I mean, in fairness, you and I were talking about this issue 12 years ago when you were in your last job. Now that, uh, now you know, obviously you're, you're doing so as secretary. You know, Vago, one of the things I bring to the table coming back into government is 20 years of Cold War experience. And during those 20 years, we very much worried about the threat of a peer competitor who was engaged in a race with us for technological superiority, uh, conventionally and, and even in the strategic regime. So I'm, I'm, I won't say I'm used to this. It's been a while since the Cold War ended. Um, but I understand it, and I, and, I, and I understand what you have to do when you're in that kind of a situation. And I've been trying to communicate that, as you said, for quite some time. You know, the service chiefs and the undersecretary, the senior leadership of the department uh, that I'm privileged to lead now appreciates this. I'm, I'm not sure that everyone has appreciated it fully uh, and have been trying to convey that sense of urgency and importance about what we do and also the risk that we're running if we don't react appropriately. And uh, again, current events, I think, make that very clear. The, the seven imperatives that I talked about this morning have been in existence within the Department of the Air Force for a few months now. Uh, they're not a result of what we just saw, and I don't see any reason to change any of them as a result of what we're seeing right now. So in terms of the direction we need to go in, um, I, I, I think it's consistent. Um, I, I do hope that the one reaction within the department is to have greater sense of urgency about it and a greater sense of the fact that you know, some of the things that we focused on when we had uh, assumed dominance, uh, we need to let go of so we can work together, one team, one fight, uh, to, to make sure we do deter, and if deterrence fails, to be successful on the battlefield. When you took over, um, you're, you're, you know, we're bookending this because you started, unfortunately, during the uh, uh, Afghanistan uh, pullout, which was a sporty week to start uh, on the job. It's been roughly uh, six months now since you've been in office, and your whole drive has been move faster, drive relevant capability at greater rate and, and speed. Uh, over the last six months, have you been moving the needle, uh, and, and what more is to come in order to drive that capacity out to the force more quickly. One of the more exciting things of this conference is not just listening to the chief and the MAGCOM commanders, but actually talking to airmen, talking to the squadron commanders, talking at the wing level about how people are driving change. Cruiser Wilsbach, the Pacific Air Force's commander, talked about how he's just empowering wing and squadron commanders. If it's bureaucracy, you don't need chuck it. You don't even have to bring it to my level. Do you feel like you're moving a needle, that the needle overall is moving, and how we get that needle moving faster? I think the short answer is yes, but I'm, I'm equally focused on speed as I am on uh, getting decisions right, making sure we do the right things. And then there's an element of tenacity and commitment to the things that you decide to do so that if things don't go as well as you, you would hope, that you stick with it and you get things fielded. Um, it's always a balancing act to do all of these things. 
but the thing that I have not seen enough of, quite frankly, uh, in the last few years is, is the effort to make sure that the decisions are sound. Um, and when I came back in government in 2010, I noticed right away that we were making requirements decisions essentially by intuition. And I've, I, again, my Cold War experience, I think that we need to do analysis to support our decisions. We need to pay attention to that analysis and, and it should help guide us. And professional judgment is, is of value, but it shouldn't be the only thing that we're relying on because we're dealing with a lot of things that are very hard to understand intuitively without help. Uh, so the, a lot of the work on the imperatives that I've started is about doing that analysis and making sure we're doing, making good decisions. There are a few areas, uh, such as the uncrewed uh, combat platforms I'm talking about, where I think the technology is making it pretty clear we have an opportunity to do something if we can sort out exactly what that looks like and move forward on it. Um, other areas, um, it, it's not quite as obvious what the right thing to do is. So uh, we're going to try to make sure we do those trade-offs, uh, do that effectiveness analysis up front, that operations research, using an older term, and head down the right path. And then we want to get on the path as quickly as you can, which means balancing risk and managing risk uh, so that you get to where you want to go as efficiently as you possibly can. And it isn't just about committing to full-scale development instantaneously and going forward or uh, doing rapid prototyping. It's more complex than that. There needs to be a thorough, deep understanding of the actual risk that you have and then uh, good technical decisions about how to manage it. So the two of them all come together. At the end of the day, the, the, the goal everybody should have is the one I articulated this morning, which is put meaningful military capability in the hands of operators. Uh, and so I made the comment about demonstrations and experiments and so on. Those can be very useful, and they can be part of the path to real capability, but they don't usually represent real capability themselves. Um, there are some, especially the smaller companies, who feel that they're being a little bit left out of this uh, discussion to an extent. And they actually feel that they have more readily, um, more systems and technologies and capabilities, as well as the capacity to produce them, than even the larger companies. What's your message to that part of industry, many of whom, including some overseas firms, by the way, that actually have proven capability in the hands of their militaries that, that might actually be better to just straight out buy or produce domestically than to develop from scratch? Uh, first of all, there is an opportunity here. In, in all of these areas, we are looking for creativity and innovation. We're looking for people with new ideas. Some of the concepts we're talking about are very new. They're very non-traditional. Um, I have emphasized with my teams that are working on these imperatives that they reach out to industry, both traditional industry and uh, uh, less traditional places, if you will. Startups, for example. Uh, same is true with national laboratories and, and FFRDCs and other organizations that have a lot of good creative minds. We're looking for intellectual capital that can help us solve these problems. And we don't care where we find it. So we want to open paths to people to come help us. Uh, we would ask that you reach out to us and we'll be publishing who's leading each of these initiatives. You can use that as a route. There'll be RFIs that go out. Some have gone out already, request for information to industry. Um, and we'll be organizing ourselves to bring contractors on board and work with them. I've, I have a very strong collaborative uh, relationship I've established between my operational leads and my acquisition or technical leads within the government. We want to have the same kind of a collaborative process with industry as we move forward. And we're very open to things. One of the things that uh, General Brown and I in particular, and General Raymond and I will also do this, uh, is to take a look at the things we started 
and go through them to understand the things that are high priority that we should definitely move forward with. Other things which we think, even if they're successful, we're probably never going to buy them. Uh, so we can shift those resources to something else. And then the things that are in between, where we'll have to get to some degree of progress and then assess them later on. Uh, we need to make better earlier decisions about the things that we're, we're, we're uh, interested in and focus on the ones that are going to make the greatest difference if they actually are successful. Um, I'm not uh, going to be so crass as to ask you a budget uh, question because the budget hasn't come out and neither has the national uh, defense uh, strategy, even though we understand that elements of integrated deterrence will be there and obviously there's reporting on what the top line figure is going to be. When you came on this job, you came on when Afghanistan was at its sportiest during uh, the withdrawal. We're now six months into it, and now we have another crisis, uh, a major global crisis uh, ongoing. There was, uh, when you and I spoke at the Reagan Forum, uh, you were going around with your briefing book, taking it to members of Congress to sort of convince them about why it's so important to have a full year budget. Uh, we now have uh, another reason why we might not have a full year budget. Uh, Democrats in this case are saying, well, uh, whatever supplemental Ukrainian funding uh, there is has got to come off the top line and maybe inflation should be coming off that top line uh, as well. W what are the stakes? What do we need to do? And in fact, there are a lot of people now who make the case there is an enormous bipartisan consensus to give the department the resources it needs in order to actually drive this, uh, accelerate this change uh, at, the, at the end of the day and actually pour resources and move some of these needles faster. How does this play out? What does a full year CR mean? I cannot imagine that we're having this conversation every single time we talk, but alas, unfortunately, we have to. Well, things were looking pretty positive. I understand there's some negotiations going on now that may throw things off a little bit. I hope that's not true. Um, we, we desperately need to get actual funding and not be under a CR. Uh, CRs waste time and they waste money. Time is irrecoverable. I can't get it back. And if we're in a race for technological superiority, giving away time for no good reason makes no sense to me whatsoever. So hopefully people are, have a heightened awareness now of the importance of moving forward. Uh, and, I, and I'm hopeful that they will. I, I, as I talk to the Hill, uh, I think for the people that I talk to, there is a pretty good understanding now, both of the China threat uh, and what it portends, as well as what current events suggest to us. Uh, I have put together a threat briefing. I've given it to a, a number of members on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the Hill, uh, and I've got a very positive response. It is, to some people, a, a wake-up call about the severity of the threat that we face and how we, uh, how we have to react. I'm laying the, the, the stage with these briefings for what we'll go over and ask for when we do submit our budget and what we'll ask for in the future as we work through the operational imperatives and define better what some of these uh, programs will be. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I'm hopeful, Bago, that, that we've reached a turning point in a sense here. And we can put aside some of these, you know, what I call, frankly, petty differences in order to do what the country needs for its own national security and for the security of our allies. You know, I, I will never give up hope for that, and I'll continue to work for that as long as I'm in office. Um, let me ask you uh, very quickly to recap for our audience uh, the seven uh, imperatives so that I don't mess them up, uh, even though I think they're rather uh, foundational and straightforward. For, but for folks who are listening to this and are not reading a written component of this, give us a quick recap on the seven. Well, let's see if I can get them all right away here. Uh, get the space order of battle right. Uh, it's, it's critical that we do that. We've got to go from what was a space architecture designed for an era of impunity in space to one to design for an area contested in space. 
get the advanced battle management system right. That, that's the uh, system that's supposed to use AI and modern communications technologies and so on to improve the effectiveness of our forces. We have to figure out how to actually do that and get it, get it fielded. Uh, get our sensors right to collect data on both air and ground moving targets, including maritime targets, so that we have the data that feeds that battle management system that allows you to send uh, weapon systems out to engage the targets that you're concerned with. Get the next generation of air dominance right. Uh, this is going to be a combination of a new platform, uh, which we've done some technology prototyping on, as well as uncrewed platforms and other things that work together as a formation. Uh, the next one is the uh, B-21 as another family of systems, which may include an uncrewed aircraft as well. And in both cases, the uncrewed aircraft are designed to help us have a more affordable Air Force. The, all the systems we're currently buying are too expensive. We can never afford our current force structure or to meet all the combatant commanders' requirements with the current suite of things we have in development or in production. We've got to find a way to augment them with, with less expensive systems. Uh, make our bases more resilient. Uh, we're, our, the tactical part of our Air Force is dependent upon fixed forward bases. We have to find ways to harden, defend, proliferate, uh, and use deception to confuse the enemy so that those bases can continue to operate in a conflict when they might be targeted. And then the last one is uh, understand all the things we depend upon to go to war and make sure they're adequately hardened against the threats that we face. That whole suite of things, when you take them all together, are the things that we have to have to be successful. Deterrence, to me, depends upon the actual capability to defeat the aggression that somebody else might decide they want to embark upon. And all of those things are necessary for us to be able to do that. Um, let me ask two quick questions before I get the hook and uh, get pushed out of here because uh, you're, you're very busy and unfortunately you're heading back uh, to D.C. tonight and won't enjoy the last day of this conference. Um, one of the key elements of conflict is cyber. We've been in a hot war now. There's a recognition for some 15 years. Uh, you um, saw that and one of the reasons why you put some of the guidance about not talking about capabilities, for example, was driven by let's make sure we harden some of these capabilities, industrial and, and otherwise. Um, are we focused enough on the cyber defensive elements of it and making sure that both known hardware and software vulnerabilities in our systems are addressed. At the end of the day, everybody wants to build one more aircraft or, uh, you, know, uh, you know, put an investment in a weapon as opposed to saying something that seems like a somewhat softer thing at the end of the day. Cyber is one of those areas, and I would add to the list electronic warfare and maybe munitions. And base resilience might be another one that tends to get neglected in our budgetary deliberations relative to buying platforms. And those are all critical things for success in warfighting. So uh, we, we are reviewing all of those areas. Some of them are more obviously included in the embedded imperatives in the imperatives than others. Others are embedded. Uh, we have to make sure we have the capabilities we need in each of those areas to be successful. Uh, and there are a few others. Wartime reserves is another one, probably. Um, I think we need to think much more about the actuality and the reality of possibly having a conflict than about protecting budget equities and uh, uh, preferences in peacetime. That's not the world we're living in anymore. Um, let me ask you one last question, uh, a nuclear question, and I don't want to date you, but you didn't uh, say uh, your experience during the Cold War. Uh, you're a proud graduate of, the, of West Point 1971. Your classmate was Jack Reed. Um, I think people don't fully appreciate that West Point's curriculum at the time and that the United States Army was among the most strategically minded 
services, including about the use of nuclear weapons. We're in a new nuclear age. Vladimir Putin has made his threat. Indeed, there are concerns that he might detonate a low-yield device, whether it's in Chernobyl or somewhere uh, in, in the Far East, to, do, to put more teeth to his saber-rattling. Saber um, are you comfortable that our nuclear strategic thinking is where we need it to be, and what are some of the things that we can do in order to be able to get us there throughout the entire national command authority from your standpoint? Because we now even have a more, another complicating element, right? The fractional orbital bombardment system, which puts another very different dynamic to this, you know, including it from a nuclear capability that we've never known before. Yeah, I have a lot of experience in strategic missile defense and a fair amount of uh, experience. I chaired the Nuclear Weapons Council for several years with our offensive strategic, and now I'm responsible, of course, for two legs of the triad. The, um, the equation has changed dramatically with uh, China's breakout. Their, their addition of, uh, of ICBMs in particular. For decades, China had a relatively small nuclear force, uh, two or 300 weapons maybe. And that was quite clearly a force that was designed for retaliatory use if they were ever attacked by nuclear weapons. By going to a large force, they, they've totally upset the apple cart, if you will, of nuclear stability. And we had to think that through. Uh, there were a lot of theorists or a lot of discussion back in the Cold War, going back to the earliest days. And our, our, our thinking in the 50s was, frankly, pretty primitive and not very nuanced about all this. It got better over time. We've got to re-energize that community. And there are plenty of people out there who are, are expert in this. But we, we also have to engage in a dialogue with China, because I don't think China appreciates the significance of what they've done and what it means for the security of the, of the planet. Uh, so we're, we're entering into a new era here. Uh, the fractional orbital bombardment system concept, which the Soviets used to talk about, I'm not sure they ever did it, uh, adds a new element of instability and insecurity, but it's one of several. The, the entire situation with a tripolar nuclear world is very different than anything we've ever seen before. I was with uh, Commander Stratcom a few months ago, and he, he mentioned to me the difference between a two-body problem in orbital mechanics and a three-body problem, and how many stable solutions there are to each. There are a lot of stable solutions for the two-body problem, and not very many for the three-body problem. Uh, I'm not sure the analogy entirely fits, but it makes the point, I think, that uh, we need to start uh, trying to understand this more deeply, and we need to have a dialogue with China. Uh, the, the cultural difference we had with the Russians was significant, but it was much less than the cultural difference we have with China. And throughout the Cold War, I thought that when the Russians were telling me a lot of things that they were not telling me the truth. It turns out that they were telling me what they actually believed. Uh, that was a cultural difference. They saw things differently than we did, and because we saw them the way we saw them, we assumed they were lying when they said something else. They were not. Uh, and that sort of thing can lead to, to absolutely catastrophic miscalculation. So we need to start talking to China, we need to start understanding what this new world looks like, and we need to start looking for ways to ensure stability uh, and that we don't have a catastrophic event. Mr. Secretary, it's always an honor and pleasure. Thanks very, very much. And uh, if we don't talk uh, before the budget, break a leg. <laughs> Thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.